This is a Sandy Boy Productions podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Why Is Everyone Yelling with Lindsay Hine. I'm your host, Lindsay, and I'm so grateful you are joining us today. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. I'm really excited to welcome back a returning guest to the show. You know it was fun the first time when you asked to have them back. And today I'm speaking with Yael Braun, who is a clinical psychologist, and she's also the co-host of the podcast, Psychologists Off the Clock a podcast about the science and practice of living well. She's the author of the new book, Work, Parent, Thrive. And in our first conversation on this podcast, we talked a lot about what it looks like to thrive in work, parenting, relationships, stress management, and how we can plan to focus on the things that really matter to us. Well, today we are diving deep into relationships and how we can learn to parent with our significant other and still enjoy being around them. It can be really hard. And I think one of the hardest things is that division of responsibility, who's doing what. In this conversation, Yael really breaks down how we can grow in connection through the good, the bad, and the downright infuriating. That's the title of one of her chapters in her book. Uh, I love this quote that she starts the chapter with. Before you marry a person, you should first make them use a computer with slow internet service to see who they really are. But that's a quote by Will Ferrell. Kind of funny. Um, All right, friends, if you are enjoying this podcast, if you are benefiting from it at all, please leave us a quick rating and review so that uh, we can grow the show so that more listeners can hopefully benefit as well. Uh, If you do share on social media, make sure you tag me. I am lindsayhines626 and This podcast, we are on Instagram. We are Why Is Everyone Yelling? You can also, for this specific episode, find Yael. I know my guests always love it when they are tagged as well. She is Yael Sean Braun over there. And her podcast is Off the Clock Psych. All right, this podcast is supported by Gooder. If you are looking for the best pair of sunglasses that are functional, fashionable, and affordable, go to gooder.com and use the code Lindsay, L-I-N-D-S-E-Y-1-5. All right, friends, enjoy my conversation with Yael. All right, everybody, welcome to Why Is Everyone Yelling? We have Dr. Yael Sean Braun on the show. Welcome back, Yael. Thank you for having me back. I had such a fun first time on, so I'm excited to be back to talk about relationships. Yes, so fun. If you all haven't listened to our first episode, we talked about working parenthood life on that episode. Uh, Yael is the author of the book, Work, Parent, Thrive. And in that conversation, I knew that we wanted to dive more into some specific topics that we did not have time to get into. So here we are to talk about relationships. Yay, I'm excited. And I will say that, you know, I just generally specialize in relationship therapy in, you know, in the therapy room. But the book has a chapter dedicated to managing relationships in the context of a very full life. So we can have healthy romantic partnerships even when we are busy in parenting and work and all the other demands that we have confronting us. It just takes a little bit of strategy and skill and patience to to kind of build that marital house. 
Yeah. And I feel like it's really easy to just let it go and not put the energy into it. Like we have to do all these things. Like the kids have to be at these places. Like, you know, I just told you before we started recording, like my husband and I, neither of us feel very good right now. And it's like all the things still have to happen. And not to say this is the moment where we need to be pouring into our relationship if both of us feel like crap, but yeah, it's easy to just kind of like go through the motions. Totally. Or to not go through the motions, right? right. To like put marriage with it. Because, and, and I think that makes so much sense because, you know, if you're a parent and you work, you've got little people who, if you don't meet their needs, are going to really be in trouble. And if you have work deadlines, if you don't meet those deadlines, then you're not going to have a job, which will be problematic for your family's functioning. And in contrast, if you're married to an adult, then they're kind of going to be fine if you don't attend to them. And yeah. your relationship, you know, if you've made a commitment, will likely be fine if you don't pay attention to it today. The problem is if you repeatedly put it on the back burner and kick the can down the road, and that is the habit that you build, then the distance can grow between you and your partner, the warmth can evaporate, and you can sort of forget how to be in close relationship. And so that's the problem. It's not like dropping the ball here and there or you know, giving yourself a bye if you have a week where you're both feeling like garbage. It's the sort of never prioritizing it that can be really problematic. And that happens when our lives are really full and these things are sort of insistent on our attention and our marriage isn't. So I'm so curious though, you do this for work and you're also a married human being and you have three kids. And so like, is that weird? Because you're constantly working with other people on the things they're going through, but then also like you have your own real life as well. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I like in every area that I write about and teach my patients and, uh, you know, I supervise other uh, clinicians who are in training. I use these strategies myself and they're quite helpful. So I don't tell anyone to do anything that I don't also do. And I also give myself a lot of grace when I fall short because life is busy and taxing and tough. I mean, just think about the pandemic, right? Like I, my marriage struggled a lot because the stressors were so high and my husband and I were both feeling overwhelmed and like we didn't have any support and we're looking to the other person to kind of save us and we're both drowning ourselves. So, you know, I'm human too. And it's nice to be able to turn to these clinical practices and the science and to kind of be able to write the boat that's kind of tipped over. Um, but yeah, my boat tips too, just like anybody else. Um, and in a way, doing therapy is kind of a good reminder, right, to do things like, you know, fo- foster the connection with my partner, even though life is busy and knowing that I'm always going to say, uh, but, you know, this week is really busy. <laughs> And, and sort of recognizing that that is a, a, a really um, common default setting, but also one that is important to try to overcome. You know, it's interesting you said that like this week is really busy and like communicating that because I'm the kind of person where I would love on like Sundays to be like, this is what our week is going to look like. And like, this is the day I need more help and blah, blah, blah. And my husband's like, eh, just figure it out as we go. And that's kind of <laughs> complicated, right? Yeah, actually, I have a similar difference in my marriage where I'm the planner and my husband's very go with the flow. And I would say compromise. And and this is one thing that I talk a lot about in therapy and also in the book where I think seeing those differences, not as incompatibilities, but as an opportunity to be complementary together with your partner is actually useful because 
Lindsay, your husband probably helps you to be more spontaneous and go with the flow. And you probably help him to be more planful around things that are really important to get to. And so it's actually nice that you bring that you each bring something different to the table, because if you were both planners, then you'd never have any spontaneity. If you were both super spontaneous, then you'd never be able to work towards long term goals. So it's nice to have that difference in a relationship and being able to appreciate those areas where you might not see eye to eye as being complementary and potentially really productive, fruitful differences can help you to be more optimistic when you do that planning on Sunday. You know, you can say, hey, I love that we are going to have some spontaneity, but could we also do a tiny bit of planning, like a little bit of both? And I don't want the listener to hear that wrong because I am actually not a great planner. Um, <laughs> there's just certain certain things where like, it's also I'm I can be kind of lazy. Also, like I'm like I want to do the meal planning for the week, but like I don't want to do it by myself. Like I want to do it all together. And <laughs> I think I really need to work on um, knowing that my happiness does not lie in what he does and his life being what I want my life to look like because we're different people. Yeah. And that's a common difference between partners is one person wants more connectivity and doing everything in a shared way. And one partner wants more independence and yes. finding, you know, the, the benefit in that difference too. Although, and I wanted to actually ask you this because you tweeted yesterday that you uh, predictably text Glenn yes. at like 4.30 to ask when he's going to be done with work, even when you're both at home. So is that a way that you try to connect and sort of come back together into a shared place? I mean, it brings me back to the days when our kids were really young because he didn't work from home. And I would always be like, what time do you think you'll be off today? And it was always like, <laughs> when this, can I do the pass off? <laughs> yeah, it was like always this like moment of desperation. Like I'm giving everybody a bath for the second time because like I'm just trying to kill time and like get to, you know, the part of the day where he comes home. And so now it's kind of just like even though he's working, he's home, but he's not and I just, yeah, I want to know, like, when when are we back in on this together? It's not even that I want to hand off the kids stuff to him because our kids are bigger now. But it's that I'm like, I want you out of your hole, like out of your office hole. Yeah. Yeah. You want to be in it together. And yeah. I think that's one of the things about marriage that is beautiful, right? Which is that, you know, we have, at least that's the goal, a partner in life that, you know, we don't have to be handling the four kids, even if you know, it's not the heavy lift that it was when they were really tiny. You don't have to handle that alone. You can make dinner plans together. You can watch a show after the kids go to bed and, and you know, be connected with somebody. Of course, it's also nice to have alone time, but there's something really nice about being able to share your days and your weeks with somebody. And so, you know, that's something to look forward to. But again, it's sort of that combination of, you know, independence time and connected time and finding sort of the overlap in the Venn diagram that works for each of you. And I will say, too, that just, just getting back to like the kicking the can down the road idea that you, it's helpful to set realistic benchmarks of, of where you'd like to get. So, for example, I often counsel people to, you know, find time in a week to have a conversation about some planning or some problem solving just so you have it on the calendar. So you don't have to wait until things are really desperate mm -hmm. before you do that, just to kind of get in the habit. And also find some time in the week where you do something that is pleasant together, like a date night. And be really flexible about it. If you have young kids, have a date night in the house, <laughs> have it for 20 minutes, you know, just whatever you can, but make it a habit. And the other piece that is very flexible is I suggest you put it on the calendar every week, 
you know, one of each kind of appointment with your partner and aim for like two out of four weeks of the month because life happens. Mm -hmm. And the, the goal isn't to be perfect. The goal is to just not kick the can so far down the road that you've forgotten how to do planning or how to have spontaneous fun time. Um, and being super flexible and setting a realistic goal is, is really helpful for most people who are really busy with all the demands of life. How do you feel about scheduling in like sex time on the calendar? I'm pro. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. It's a little bit like people talk about, you know, writing, like creative writing and waiting for the muse to strike. And that actually, you know, if you wait for creativity to hit you, you're going to be waiting a long time. Yep. But if you sit your tushy down in the chair and write every day, some days are not going to be great. Some days the muse is not going to come and visit you and the words will come hard or not at all. But if you repeatedly sit and you think about it and you remain open to the experience of having a creative thought, then it's much more likely to come. The same thing goes with intimacy, right? If we're sort of waiting to feel desire and arousal for our partner before we ever make time for it, it's going to be a long wait. The better, more strategic approach is to set aside time to like set the mood, to try to be pleasant with your partner. And especially for women, because um, the ordering of desire and arousal works different for men than women. So for men, connection usually comes after intimacy. Like men feel more emotionally connected after sex, whereas women, and this is a, a statistical finding, it's not globally true, but more often women are uh, wanting to feel emotionally connected mm -hmm. in order to be physically intimate. And so recognizing that difference and helping each other to get to that point of connection, supporting each other. So for example, if a husband knows that their wife needs to feel emotionally connected in order to want to have sex, to try to foster some emotional connection and in, in however that looks for the two of you. Yes. It, it, that's really hard. That's it's really so hard. hard. Yeah. Especially if you have kids climbing all over you. <laughs> That's so true. Um, one of the things we were you had mentioned earlier, I forget what it was, but it made me think of like being with a group of friends. And I've always said like, I don't want to be with a group of friends who just sit around and complain about their spouses. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to be a part of that. It doesn't feel like helpful. But at the same time, sometimes it's good to hear about other people's issues because you're like, okay, we're normal. Like this isn't yeah. wild. This isn't crazy. They're going through it too. What's your view on that? Like talking things out to a certain extent with friend groups? Yeah. Again, I'm pro, but you know, with some conditions we actually just recently on our podcast, uh, psychologist off the clock, um, actually, and it, it's not out yet, but we had on Whitney Goodman, whose book is toxic positivity. Ooh. And I started thinking, this in the context of relationships because I think that we tend to get very black and white about relationships and like oh a good relationship should only you know feel good and your partner should understand you and be able to anticipate you know what you want for your birthday and also you know what kind of date you want and how you'd like to have sex and all those things and you know that isn't true not for anybody even research shows with long healthy relationships that every couple has conflict right if there's closeness and intimacy there will be conflict so just point one is mm -hmm. that everybody has tough points in their relationship and the more we normalize that in our friend groups i think the better but the contrast of toxic positivity isn't 
negativity, right? Because that's hard because then we start getting really negative. Like, what's the point of even having a relationship? And that isn't true either, right? Even though relationships can be hard, they offer a lot of benefit. Studies show that people who are in healthy marriages have better health, have better um, happiness, have better capacity to tolerate stress. Um, so there is good reason to, you know, sustain your close relationships, even though they marriage is very hard at points. So I think it is helpful to have people to normalize the tougher experiences with. And it's also helpful not to get so down in the mud about what marriage involves, the tougher parts of what marriage involves. Um, so I think uh, just finding that balance so that you're not entering into toxic positivity, but that you're not also entering into like the dark hole of, of you know, all relationships suck and what's the point of any of it. I was just looking at someone's Instagram, this guy that's like a, well, you know who Jesse Itzler is? Mm-mm. Okay. Well, he's married to Sarah Blakely. Um, she's the founder of Spanx. And oh, okay. <laughs> Jesse Itzler is like hardcore, like physical activity and health and Um, there's this other guy that he works with named Devin and he is also into that. And I was like scrolling through his profile for like, I don't know, 30 minutes, like (laughs) deep diving what he does. And I got to this place where I was like, he's really inspiring me. He really, really is. But I'm also feeling like I'm falling short. Like Mm. I'm never going to be as maybe passionate's not the right word, but like as, um, all in on all the things all the time (laughs) as this guy is. And it really got me thinking about toxic positivity because there's a place for like all in positivity. There's a place for someone to share that message. And this guy does a really good job at it. But at the same time, it can also feel like overwhelming and like I'm wasting my life because I'm not living like that. Totally. Yeah. And when it comes to relationships, it it can make it feel like your relationship can never live up to the ideals and what's wrong with you and your partner. And did you pick wrong? And are you a terrible partner? And is it, you know, your family of origin, you know, scars coming back to haunt you that you'll never escape? It can be really scary. And then, but as you're saying, like the opposite is also rough. I like Instagram and Twitter feeds like yours, Lindsay's, where there's positivity and humor, and then there's also elements of realness. And I think we can each kind of curate our own social media feeds to find that balance. I mean, I think it's helpful to curate your friend group, to be around people yeah. who uh, you know, will share the the hard stuff, but also, you know, make you feel optimistic that thing you can grow from the hard stuff and and to see what is good even in as you're going through a rough patch. Um, and and so, you know, trying to find places where we can have that healthy balance of validating what's hard, but also, you know, staying open to the good stuff, looking for it, nurturing it, I think is really healthy and helpful. And there are certainly lots of people on social media who you can follow that will offer that as well. Hey friends, I want to tell you about the Donna Marathon weekend. This is a marathon weekend to finish breast cancer. There is a 5k, a half marathon and a marathon. It is the weekend of February 3rd through 5th in Jacksonville, Florida. I am going to be there and having a fun meetup where I would love to meet you all. This race is close to my heart and I have been going to it. This will be my sixth year. It starts and finishes at Jacksonville Beach. Beautiful, beautiful area. You don't actually run on the sand, so don't worry. That's not hard. 
Um, and again, this race benefits the Donna Foundation, which helps families walking through a breast cancer diagnosis and also helps fund groundbreaking research. Uh, they partner directly with the Mayo Clinic. I would just love to meet listeners and get to know you all and see you at this race. It's a great thing to put on your calendar during the time of year where it's kind of like, oh, what am I doing? February, early February. Um, and it's always a little bit warmer down there, but not too warm for a race. So go to breastcancermarathon.com. Use the code Lindsay10, Lindsay10, to save 10% off your registration. And uh, let me know if you do sign up so we can plan to meet up at the race. You can find me on Instagram. I'm lindsayhine626 or shoot me an email, lindsay at sandyboyproductions.com. All right, friends, enjoy the rest of the show. I always think about doing that whole unfollow everybody and start fresh to like really curate that feed. Yeah. But I really struggle with like offending people. Like, cause if I actually, I thought about this, I was like, if I do that, I think I would have my assistant Emma do it all so that I don't have to like look at it and feel like guilty unfollowing people. And then like literally just start from zero and make it, I mean, you can only make it so much of what you want it because of algorithms, like things pop up. But I mean, so much of what I have on my social media feeds is like from, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Um, so yeah, I've thought about doing that a lot, but I, I have this like guilt, like I don't want to hurt feelings. <laughs> yeah. Well, a lot of the people who have bigger platforms won't notice. And then that's the people true. Who you're friends with, you can just follow them back right away. I will sure. say when, when huge down. So I actually uh, started an Instagram feed a few years ago, maybe two years ago, and hated it so much. It just felt like so much pressure mm -hmm. that I ended up shutting it down and just having like a very private feed. But then my book came out and I had like 25 followers and I was like, oops, like I kind of messed that up. So there are downsides to not being on social media, especially if you're trying to share a message or get a book out or, you know, have a podcast that, that makes a mark. But like everything, you know, social media has good stuff that go that it offers and then it has a dark side. And so I think just being thoughtful about it and finding that balance so that you don't step into toxic positivity yeah. or into depressive, you know, realism, but somewhere in between where you can make space for both in a healthy way and curating it or, or you know, having boundaries around the time that you spend on it, things like that can be super helpful. Depressive realism. I've never heard that term, <laughs> but it's so true. Yeah, this is a research concept that people who ha have depressive personality styles tend to be more realistic, but actually it doesn't serve them, which kind of fits into the kind of therapy that I do. We think more about the workability of our thoughts rather than the accuracy, because for example, like we're all going to die, but if we walk around thinking that thought all day, it's going to prevent us from engaging in a meaningful, happy, enjoyable life, um, from nurturing positive relationships, from trying really hard at anything. And so accuracy is actually less important than than workability or usefulness, to, to use a more accessible word. So we're looking for thoughts that help us connect to the person that we want to be and help us build the life that we want to live rather than the most true thoughts that we can land on. Wow, that's so good. Oh my gosh. I go through phases. We talked about this in the last episode about the death thing, like where it's all I think about all day. And then I'll go through phases where I'm like, I'm fine. Like it's like not not on the mind 24 seven. And it's like very cyclical for me. Yeah. 
I I think that we don't talk about that. I think a lot of people have that, especially if you have somebody who's close to you who is facing some yeah. mortal mortal issues, death um, or or severe illness. Um, and it's just sort of, I don't know, uncomfortable for people to talk about. But I, I almost wish that people would more. Actually, a really terrific book that I highly recommend for you and your listeners is called 4,000 Weeks by Oliver Berkman. 4,000 Weeks is actually the average human lifespan, which is kind of terrifying when you think right, about it. Totally. But he he talks about that it's, there's something really functional about thinking about our mortality. It helps bring us back to the present and get engaged with the life, you know, living life today. Like life is not a dress rehearsal. So mm-hmm. if you're living for the thing that's a few years down the road or so that you can get some accolade, like think twice because today is today and who knows what tomorrow will bring or won't bring. So you might as well live today to the fullest. Yeah, you're so right too. I mean, I one of the most recent times I was going through this like um, downward spiral with that, it was when one of my friends, like she's okay now, but she was going through a really like unknowing health situation where like she, she just didn't have answers for like six months and it was terrifying. Um, And I was like manifesting that into my own life. And I oftentimes do that when, you know, it's like, here's one of the other problems with social media is like you all of a sudden see, everything that's happening, you know, of every disaster, every person that's sick. And so then you can like manifest that into your own life. Like every time I see that someone has a brain tumor or something like that, I start getting a headache and it's like, it's, it's such a curse, you know, like it's not a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and our mind is drawn to the more dramatic extreme things and that's kind of evolutionary because it's, it's protective, right? If you sort of see this terrifying thing and it's on your mind, then you're more likely to protect yourself. The problem is that our brain was not wired for social media where everything is accessible to us all All the the time. time. Yeah. So the practice that's useful is, you know, noticing those thoughts, unhooking, and then being more deliberate about where you send your attention. But there's a reality. I mean, there are just times where we have more anxiety. Like um, I write about this in the book, but my father passed away about three and a half years ago. And I had a period after he died where I, like I, I, every night I would have nightmares about his death. It was a pretty traumatic thing to watch a parent pass away. And it, it was, you know, emotionally hard but also like seeing that you know confronting it is startling like my life will never be the same because I've experienced that and I think just making space for it and seeing that as an opportunity to learn you know various things I learned a lot through that experience and it really changed the way that I think about mortality um, in a in a profound way and in a really enduring way so I don't have the nightmares anymore at least not as often but Um, I feel very different about the finitude of life than I used to. I'm so curious. How old are your kids again? My youngest just turned six and my middle is nine and my oldest is 12. So I'm curious as your kids like enter being teenagers and then, you know, when they go into adulthood, like how you'll communicate that kind of stuff with them. Well, we already talk about it. I mean, I'm, I'm such a psychologist. I really talk probably too freely with my kids about a lot of these things. But we talk about life being finite and that when you're a kid, it doesn't feel that way Mm -hmm. because you have what feels like, you know, forever in front of you. And that when you get to your middle age, it starts to feel a little bit different, especially as older parents start getting sick and and dying. Um, 
But yeah, I mean, I think about the passage of time a lot. Like people talk about this, like the older you get, the quicker time seems to go. And I think that is doubly true for parents. Like I remember when my oldest was a baby and I just, every day felt long and many parts were beautiful and some parts were hard. And I don't want to sort of like qualify it, but time felt more um, abundant. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And now like the weeks seem to be flying by. Mm -hmm. Like my, my little baby 12 year old is, you know, this, this little young man. And it's so cute. He, he just went to uh, some party where he had to wear a blazer and (laughs) and a button down and he's like, I can't believe it. But yeah, I think about them becoming adults and, and like, old people even yeah. like it's it's sort of mind-blowing and that I'll be you know a grandparent and and reach the end of my days at some point like I I can't help but think about it I, I'm not sure I have any pearls of wisdom about it except you know it brings me back to like let me enjoy today like today yeah. is maybe has hard parts but it also has such beautiful parts that at some point are going to be in the past yes yes um so I know from experience because I am married with children, <laughs> but in your work, like what do you see are the biggest struggles with relationships once kids come into the picture? Time. I think having enough time and even more than that energy, just because you're tired when you have <laughs> little kids. And again, you know, it really can feel like your partnership can wait, um, but that is that can be really dangerous. The other part, and I write about this in, in the book, um, is that when we're exhausted and stressed out, our mind wants to understand it. And what, what our minds do to understand what's going on is they create stories. And one of the things that our mind is very susceptible to do is to sort of pin the blame on someone, right? We don't want to pin the blame on ourselves, especially if we know that we're trying as hard as we can. And and really, we, you know, there's no reason to pin the blame on ourselves because it's not our fault. But a very natural person to pin the blame on if we're tired and suffering in some significant way because we're pulled in so many different directions and we just don't have enough resources and support is to blame our partner who from the outside seems to be doing just fine. And so a lot of couples that I see in the therapy room come in and say, you know, here I am working so hard and, you know, I'm struggling and I'm taking care of the kids and I'm working and my partner, you know, they just spend a half an hour in the bathroom while I'm like tussling with the kids and they don't understand. And that story feels like very true and might have elements of truth to it, but it's often not the whole story. Often it's the case that the other person is also struggling mightily and probably has a story that vilifies the partner A as well. (laughs) And it can go in either direction um, gender wise. But, you know, if you hear yourself in that story that, you know, my partner has really dropped the ball and they have it so much easier and they don't understand likely is not your partner has some version of that too, that you don't understand what it is that they're going through. And what we know from research is that we think that, like most of us just assume that the reasoning comes first and then the feeling. And it's actually the opposite direction, that feelings lead to reasoning, not the other way around. And so recognizing that when we're uncomfortable, our mind is going to try to explain why and that our partner is an easy explanation can help us just pause and say, okay, my partner maybe could be doing more, but also is it possible and like bring curiosity into it? Is it possible that my partner might also be struggling, that I might be a part of, you know, how this communication has fallen apart or that neither of us is to blame? Like, 
this is just a rough patch of life. We have a lot of demands on us. Things are hard and nobody's done anything wrong, which doesn't mean we can't do it better. But, you know, can I start from a place of, you know, we're we're all trying our best. Maybe we can try better together if we start from a place of, you know, hey, what's going on for you? Can I share what's going on for me? And sort of pause in that vilification story. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. And I think that like division of labor with kid tasks, house cleaning, like Mm. that is so hard. I mean, I can even give a small example of like at bedtime, like I'm always like, where did you go? Like we started (laughs) hauling everybody upstairs to brush their teeth and do all the things. And like, why are you taking out the trash right now? Like, I'm thankful that you take out the trash, but like this, this is not when I want you to leave this project. Like I want you in the bathroom guiding the toothbrushing right now while I get the jammies out. Yeah. Well, so I guess that is a good question. Did did you ask like why why now with the garbage? Why why not at a different time? And by the way, that's a very different question then. Why now? Yeah. <laughs> Where were you? Yeah. Right. So like tone has a lot to do with it, but I think curiosity can be really helpful because your partner Glenn might have had a reason, right? It, it might have been like overflowing. He might have felt like you didn't want him in that space or he might have felt like I didn't want to be doing that particular task. It's important to you, but not to me. Like there may have been reasons um, or maybe it was just laziness. Who knows? But often if you sort of enter into that, like, hey, I thought we had agreed on this, but you didn't show up. Can you explain to me like what's going on for you with like this compassionate curiosity, a tone of compassionate curiosity that goes much farther than where were you? And, you know, don't you know better? Right. Which comes across as accusation and blame. Um, I really love, actually, I don't know if you're familiar with Fair Play by Eve Rodsky. It gives this, it's so it's a book, but there's also this card game. And, and the premise is that what often happens in division of labor is that we try to, um, we mind read a lot, and we also try to share things that are that are important to us and that we want done a certain way. And so her whole thing is, you know, that you go through this set of cards, it's like a hundred cards and you talk through each one. So like bath time for the kids, toothbrushing for the kids, taking the garbage out, putting the dishes away. And you talk about who, who, who does it make sense should own this responsibility. And if you own it, instead of me, if you take that card and I let it go, do we have a minimum standard of care where if this is met, then I stay out of the way and you do your thing. Right. But it has to sort of meet this minimum standard of care. And the idea there is that like all the way from conception to execution, one person owns the card and the other person stays out of it, except if you need to return to like a conversation about the minimum standard of care. And the reason that that's helpful is that one of the things that happens is like I want to do it one way and you want to do it another. And so we end up in conflict or um or I nag you because you're not doing it that way. And then you say, you throw up your hands and say, well, I give up, right? You don't like the way I do it. And then I feel like, oh, you're not taking care of your responsibilities, like just as it always happens, mm-hmm. right? So this kind of circumvents that kind of conflict and gives you an opportunity to talk through how you want things done, who are the things important to you, and also what cards like don't actually matter to e- either of you that you can just toss out? Because I think <laughs> subtracting things from the pile that you have to do when you have a very full life is so freeing and we don't do that enough. That's so with true. With our partner. Yeah. I always say though, I'm like, would our kids ever brush their teeth if I didn't enforce this? I'm not sure. <laughs> and I'm really bad at being like, where's your dad? 
like in the moment so he can like hear me say it you know what I mean and I'm saying it to the kids but I'm actually saying like where did you go don't leave me I like that though because there are certain things that are more important to me and certain things that are more important to him like he's always going to be better about like homework stuff than me and one might think that that would be the mother but it's not it's not me at all I'm not good at that stuff yeah well what's so nice about this approach is that you can then give him the homework and like let go of the guilt like that card belongs to him and you can take on the toothbrushing and not feel irritated that he's not showing up because that one's your card I think there's so much freedom to be had in in sort of dividing and conquering on some things. I think some things are great to do together, but to free yourself, like in my house, we, like I used to do a lot of the domestic labor, the cooking and the cleaning and the laundry. And I started to get super resentful, but then I also realized like I care a lot Mm -hmm. about some of these things. So I had to really think through like, what are some of the things that I don't, that I don't feel like I need to own that I can really hand over to my partner and say, I, I promise not to interfere. I won't nag as long as you hit like some, you know, minimum standard of care. And like he now does all of our kids laundry. Like I'm sure he did not anticipate that he wasn't like into laundry and he doesn't care that much about it, but it was a thing that I can just let go of. He does it in his own way. It's not the way that I would do it, but it, it feels so good <laughs> to not have that. And I don't feel guilty because I, we are clear about some of the tasks that I've taken on. So I think, you know, distributing, letting go of the guilt and refraining from nagging just because it's not the way you want is really a a nice path to go down with your partner and to make it a conversation, a mutual conversation. Yeah. And not, and to not feel guilty because there are things like that, that I find myself being like, if I were a better mom, I would do this right and this well, and I would do this. And my one friend does that. And I, you know, her husband never has to do any of that because she just takes care of it all. And I, I do kind of find myself getting into the comparison. Like one time my friend was like, I don't think husband's name has ever unloaded the dishwasher. And I was like, really? <laughs> like, I can't imagine that life. And then I start feeling like I'm not doing enough domestic things around the house, you know? Yeah. Well, guilt is such an interesting thing. It comes up so much for parents and it comes up so much, I think, in general for women. We're so programmed to care very deeply about relationships and guilt is a very interpersonal emotion. And and the function of it is to help us protect our relationships from anticipated harm or from actual harm. And so on the one hand, it makes sense that your mind goes to guilty thoughts because you care very deeply about your marriage and you want to be a good wife, like that matters to you. But it is helpful to recognize that sometimes guilt is like this hangover from, you know, pre-modern times where if you didn't take care of your kids, like they could be eaten. If you didn't take care Mm -hmm. of your partnership, you could be ousted from your village. And like, that was very dangerous. That's no longer the case, but guilt is sort of like this hangover emotion that kind of lurks around a lot. So the trick is to, to allow it to inform you like, like you're a runner. So, you know, pain is a part of the process if you ignored it, you wouldn't know when you needed to take a break or do strength training or take a, you know, go visit the doctor to check out, you know, this pain that keeps coming up when you go for a a run. But sometimes pain is not terribly informative. Like it's just sort of like you're having a bad day and you don't feel so good, but you can't know how to distinguish between pain that is really informational and needs to prompt action versus pain that is just not that informative unless you pay attention. It's good information. So you pay attention, you ask yourself, is this guilt helpful, right? To help me be a better wife or a better parent. And 
if it's not, if it's just kind of causing me to feel crummy and bad about myself and that feeling bad about myself causes me to retract and be more grumpy with all the people that I care about most, then, hey, like, you know, we can let that go and put our attention elsewhere. The other thing that guilt sometimes causes us to do is like hover and and engage in things that aren't particularly helpful. Like maybe Glenn doesn't care whether or not you unload the dishwasher. Like for him, that is not the hallmark of a good partner. And so if you spend a lot of time and energy on that and miss out on other opportunities to like be cuddly with him, then that's a miss, right? That's guilt prompting you in a direction that doesn't actually help you to do the thing that you really care about, to connect deeply and thoughtfully with your partner. So that's where it's useful to sort of get curious about your guilt and ask that those kinds of questions. Is this helpful? Does this help me move in a direction that I care about? Hey, everybody. Have you heard about PrepDish? PrepDish is a way to make your week easier by prepping your meals for the whole week at the beginning of the week. Allison, the founder of PrepDish, gives you a detailed grocery list, detailed recipes, and you prep those meals for the whole week on one day. It takes just a couple hours. And then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, you just pull things out of the fridge and throw them into the oven, the crock pot, cook them on the stove, whatever the recipe calls for that day. But everything is already prepped. You're not chopping vegetables at 6 p.m. when you get home from work. The cool thing about this is there's different meal plan options to fit your needs and your family. And you can try it out for two weeks totally free when you go to PrepDish.com slash Lindsay. That's PrepDish.com slash L-I-N-D-S-E-Y. And when you support a sponsor of this show, you are directly supporting the podcast and the small business here. PrepDish is a small business which is so awesome. Go to PrepDish.com slash Lindsay, L-I-N-D-S-E-Y. All right, friends, back to the show. What about the weight out? It's like you both know that the dishwasher needs loaded or you both know that the, the <laughs> baby has poop in his diaper and you're like just waiting each other out like, I know he knows. And he's like, I know she knows. Do you know what I mean? You know, have you ever done that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We just, um. oh gosh, what today? Today is Tuesday. It's only Tuesday. Yesterday, my youngest was home with an ear infection and like he didn't sleep very well because his ear was hurting. And in the morning, I was like, waiting for my husband to let me know, like, you know, he knows that I just had a book come out and that I have a lot of meetings on the table. And he probably was thinking, I know he was thinking, because he told me this, like he had a really important meeting, but both of us were kind of like, hmm. So he doesn't seem to be feeling that well. He didn't sleep that well. We're staying home. (laughs) Yeah. So finally I was like, okay, so like, what are we doing? Like I, you have meetings probably, I definitely have meetings. How do we want to handle this? So I don't have a good answer to that, except that, you know, if you're testing your partner, you're both going to be disappointed. Like, don't <laughs> test each other, collaborate. So the general framework that I operate under is anytime you can turn a problem from me versus you to us against the problem, like, that's the win. So, hey, we need to figure this out is better than, hmm, who's going who's gonna to take this one for the team? <laughs> like, whose stuff is more important? Um but that is really hard because when you're stressed out, like the gut reaction is to self-protect, mm-hmm. right? Is not to put yourself out there. And so it, it sort of requires you to go against the reflex of what is very human, which is self-protection. So who, who stayed home? I stayed home, but it was it was like a conversation that is very different than would have happened a few years ago before I had really put in these practices into play. I said, 
you know, I don't have anything that can't be rescheduled today, but just so you know, there's going to be days this winter where that's not the case. And I expect you to offer up your schedule in lieu of mine because I'm going to be flexible today. Yeah. So it was very, it was very like, um, I, I took a negotiating tactic and I said, I'm happy to do it, but I'm not always going to be happy to do it. And I hope you can be generous when I, when I can't. Yeah, that gets really hard. Um, I think the working from home full time for both of us has been helpful in that regard because before my husband used to always go into the office every single day and um, he works way more than I do. And so I naturally take on the kids stuff more. But, you know, we have one kid that still comes home at one every day and like one of us has to pick him up from school. And I would say 80 percent of the time it's me. Uh, but we've really learned to be flexible and it's been life changing for me because before it was just all on me and I still work. I just don't work as much. So I still yeah. need, I still need help, you know? Yeah. And you're, even if you don't work as much, your work time matters as much. Yes. Right. That's right. And, and I think that those things can get super complicated. And Lindsay, I'm in the same position as you where my hours are more flexible and fewer also our health insurance doesn't ride on my job. So, yep. so in the past, we've had these conversations where it's like, well, if one of us is going to get fired, it shouldn't be my husband yeah. because then we'd really be in trouble. Yep. And so we end up prioritizing his work, but it would make me resentful. And so we've had like many conversations yep. where it is, it's like, you know, an hour of your time doesn't count more than an hour of my time, even if we need to prioritize your job. And so can we be respectful of the fact that I, I am just as important of a person and the things that matter to me are just as important as the things that matter to you? That's so true. And it's so different too when, yeah, you work for yourself, they work for another person. So like you can make your own schedule. I know you can't because you necessarily because you have clients that you see. So you can't just like change a client appointment. But um, yeah, that's a, that's a real big challenge. And that's something I still struggle with. I mean, it's like, because I make my own hours and I, and I have made this a flexible job, I sometimes wonder like, did I sell myself short career wise because I've given myself so much freedom? Like we could have always had more childcare, but I chose not to. And, yeah. um, that's challenging. Yeah, well, and I think that those kinds of questions are so hard to answer because on the one hand, maybe you did sell yourself short. You could have had like been more profitable and had more success, but then you would have missed out on time that it sounds like you really valued with your kids. And I think that's kind of the opportunity cost that we can't avoid, but we can be more thoughtful about yeah. how we pick. And that's that's where like values and, and really thinking about like what you want to stand for and in this phase of life you know, what, what would you be proud of having committed more of your time to and recognizing that there's always going to be costs, right? If you pick one thing, it means that you're putting your attention there and not on something else. And can you make that choice work for you? Um, and, you know, thinking about it, like in the gray is not in black and white. The other thing I'll just say too, about the flexibility is like, I think right now we're living in a time where workplaces are growing more flexibility. People can work from home. You can set your own hours in, in a way that we couldn't before all this remote working and technology came into play. And there's such huge gifts of that, but it has opportunity costs. And For I will sure. say is, and I, I actually do have a pretty flexible job. One of the th challenges that I constantly bump into is I just feel like I'm 
breaking my back trying to cater to everybody because I can. Like theoretically, mm-hmm. I can. I could move a patient to make my kids, you know, harvest festival that's in the middle of the last day of school. So, you know, I and I can, you know, accommodate patients early and late and I can make sure that I drop my kids off and pick them up and I can be there for the journal club. I can do all those things and it just creates so many logistical nightmares totally. for me of moving everything around. And it makes me resentful and grumpy, which makes me not a great parent and not a great therapist. And so I think that's when I need to pause and say, you know, the flexibility has great aspects to it. But when I take it to an extreme, it stops being as beneficial. And so I need to be a little bit less flexible, which has some costs, but will ultimately save me from the toxic resentment. That is so true. Just the other day, what was it? The fun run at school. I was like trying to move things around to make it to at least two of the three kids because they're all at different times. And I was getting off a call and I was like, okay, I have a window now. I'm going to go over to the school to check out the fun run. And then the person I was interviewing hopped on Skype and was like, good morning. And I was like, oh, shoot, it's a 12. I thought it was a one. And so I, of course, take the call instead because this person like got up and they're ready for me. And and I thought and it was of all three of my kids at the fun run, it was the one kid that was like going to care the most that I wasn't there. But I was like, I, you know, like you weigh it at the time, like at the time I could have said, I can reschedule this right now and run down there. But I just based on who the interview was and the timing and everything, I was yeah. like, I need to go ahead and just do this. And he's still talking about it three day, three weeks later that why didn't you come to my fun run? You went to <laughs> Lewis's fun run. <laughs> yeah. Well, and oh my gosh, kids are the worst at giving parents guilt trips, but here's an opportunity for a mindset shift. And this is something I talk about with my kids all the time when they're disappointed that I can't or slash won't because it, right? I know that I can. Most of the time I could. Right, right. But we talk about it as an opportunity for them. Like, hey, sometimes mom isn't going to be there. And like, that's disappointing. And wow, you have this opportunity to like, learn how to handle disappointment and to be more independent. That's so good for you. That's such a big kid thing to do. And hey, look at mom. She's balancing trying to be there for you and doing a job that's really important, that's making an impact. And you get to support me. Like, that's so cool. Like, I'm often supporting you, but here is you in the position of supporting me. Like, I'm so grateful to you. And so we can turn these tough experiences into opportunities for growth. Like, you know, look at you being independent and figuring it out on your own when mom dropped the ball. Like, that's so awesome. And so I think that's an opportunity. Like when guilt flares up, when parent guilt or partner guilt flares up, anytime that you can see it as a growth opportunity for you, for your kid, for your relationship, that turns a difficult experience into something that you can make something really meaningful from. And and that, hey, isn't that what life is about? Totally. I love that thought. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to mention that to him next time we talk about it. Yeah. Um, and I was bummed because the first fun runner was at nine. There was like 930. There was one at 12 and there was one at like 230. And I totally could have gone to the nine o'clock, but I didn't realize it was at nine. I was like out for a run. I like literally ran by the school oh, no. <laughs> um, and I only made it to the last one. But yeah, I mean, I'm just saying that because I know there's other people listening that, you know, you just sometimes it just you don't have it together and that's okay oh my god well so and it's so funny because these are again I tell my I talk to my kids about this stuff all the time and they think it's very annoying that to have a psychologist for a parent they tell me that too which is very funny um but 
I'm often talking to my kids about their failures as opportunities to learn and grow. And this just this weekend, this past weekend, I had a day where I just like everything went wrong. Like my kid had this event and I had gotten him the blazer and the pants, but not the shirt. And mm. so it's a Saturday and I have to, and my oldest, he was at a soccer game and I had dragged my youngest two to the shopping mall. We hit traffic, then I couldn't get parking. Then I left my six-year-old in the car and there was a huge line. So he's baking in the car and I'm freaking out. And then turns out I forgot the shoes. So I, it was like one thing after another and I was getting super upset. And my nine-year-old said, but mom, you always say when we mess up, we get to learn and grow. <laughs> I was like, baby, that's awesome. Thank you. Thank you for reminding me because I've been feeling pretty hard on myself, but you're right. I'm human too. That's so, so sweet. I love that. <laughs> it reminds me of um, in the past when I've let spill out of my mouth. I don't want to go run, but I need to go run. And my kids will say, well, you don't have to if you don't want to. And it's like, <laughs> oh, you're so right. Like, I love it when that wisdom comes in. Like, change your mindset. Like, you you yeah. want to or you don't. Like, go either go run and, like, embrace that or stop talking about it and don't go run. Yeah. Isn't it great when the messages that we try to teach our kids are exactly the ones that we need to be practicing and they're the ones who are guiding us in practicing it? Totally. I love that. I love that. Another thing that I've been working on with my kids is seeing stress as something that's good for you. And so whenever I say, oh, I'm so stressed out, they say, but mom, it's so good for you. <laughs> it just makes me laugh. Yeah. You're like, is it? Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay I believe you. I guess the research does, says it, even though it doesn't feel like it in the moment. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, let's wrap up here. Uh, well, uh, first, let me ask you, do you have a new book recommendation? Because I always ask that on every episode. Um, I am right now reading a book by Arthur C. Brooks called Love Your Enemies. That's all about, um, it's very cool because it's sort of about politics, but it brings a lot of marital research ideas in. So it's basically how we can sort of um, cure a culture of contempt. Mm. And in this really thoughtful, research-based, relationally oriented way. I love it. That sounds like a book everybody on Twitter needs to read. Yeah. <laughs> Love your yes. enemies. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, based on this topic that we're talking about today, what is your like last message for people in relationships with kids? <laughs> well, um, I'll tell you, this is one of my absolute favorite studies, but empathy for your partner really matters. And what research has shown is it's not about accuracy. It's about effort. So engage curious effort to understand that your partner is also having an experience right alongside your painful experience and, and invite them to be curious and put some effort into having empathy for yours. So in other words, and this is kind of like the byline is like, rather than getting stuck in your own story, which is so hard, it's hard to escape, but like really make an effort to creating a shared story with your partner. So good. Thank you, Yael. Thanks so much for having me back on, Lindsay. It's always so fun to talk to you. All right, everybody. Thanks for being here today. Thank you, Yael, for coming on the show. If you love hearing from Yael, go pick up her book. It's called Work, Parent, Thrive. And check out her podcast. It's called Off the Clock Psychologists. 
I would love to connect with you. I am Lindsay Hine 626 on Instagram at Lindsay Hine on Twitter. And uh, we have a Facebook group. Why is everyone yelling podcast? If you have any suggestions for the show, email me Lindsay at sandyboyproductions.com. Thank you, Emma Benner, for editing this episode of the podcast and all the episodes in the Sandy Boy Productions Podcast Network. Thanks for being here, friends, and we will see you next week. 